We've been in this series in the first, uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 16 today. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel um, 16, 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, I'd keep them open. We're going to walk through the verse, uh, the passage verse by verse as is our custom. But for now, let me read it to you. This is God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, or it could be translated the smallest. But behold, He is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, apparently your spirit can rush upon someone. Apparently it can come like the wind. And it can remain with someone forever. I pray that your spirit would rush, blow and move among us today. And linger and stay Uh, forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's uh, There's a line, a famous line of Jesus when Jesus tells a really rad story or convicting 
parable, he'll often end it by saying, those who have ears, let them hear. Well, if this passage could speak, it would say, those who have eyes, let them see. Those who have eyes, let them see. There's a word that's used nine times in our passage. It's kind of hidden in the English, but it's the Hebrew word to see. And it's a passage that apparently is here to help us to see, to have the eyes of faith, to see our circumstances and the people around us from God's perspective. It is very easy to get caught up in what things look like on the outside, whether it be our circumstances or the outward appearance of another person or our own appearance. This text asks us to look deeper, to not spend so much time in the shallow end of the pool because things are not always as they seem. It's there to train our eyes to see. You remember uh, the magic eye pictures. And I wonder, there will be a generation that will have never seen a magic eye picture and pastors will be deficient because they will not have this illustration. (laughs) Because this illustration is great. So a magic eye photo, I showed it to my kids, they couldn't see it. But on the surface, it looks like a mess of colors and dots. But for some people who learn to see in a certain way, to focus your eyes in and out, you look at this chaotic image and out pops a sailboat. It's always a sailboat. It's the only thing they can make with the magic eye photo. It's a sailboat. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you learn to see one, you can see them all. Well, passages like this are given to us to train our eyes to see with faith, to look deeper, to look at the chaos of our circumstances, and to begin to discern God's work behind the scenes. Because He is at work behind the scenes, covertly working to bring renewal and salvation. It trains us to look beyond the outward appearance of a particular individual to begin to discern the heart the heart. And so in our passage, in the middle of a time of great chaos, grief and sorrow, we find God on a covert mission to bring renewal and salvation, bringing it through into the most unlikely places and through the most overlooked people. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see? Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your home with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. A little bit of background if you're not familiar with 1 Samuel. Our passage begins in a very tumultuous point in Israel's history. It begins with grief, Samuel's grief, and really the nation's grief. Samuel is grieving over Saul, what Saul had become. Saul was the first king of Israel, a king that uh, Israel had asked for. They had asked for a king 
who would be like the king of all the nations. And Samuel was the prophet who said, I don't think that's such a great idea. But they found Saul. And why did they like, God chose Saul, but the people liked Saul because he was tall. He was big. He's a big guy. Look at how tall that guy is. Maybe we should make him king. But he didn't have what took on the inside. He didn't have the character to be able to handle that kind of power. And it began this downward spiral. And we've been witness to Saul's decline over the last few weeks. And this man's insecurities and his fear led him to greater and greater disobedience and rebellion until finally he did become a king like all the other nations. Violent, tyrannical, increasingly unhinged. And as a result, God rejected him. In the last chapter, he said, I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. A little harsh, but come on, man. Um, Let's say that Saul didn't take the news very well. And if you remember the picture that we were left with in the last chapter, it was of Saul not humbly and graciously accepting the Lord's decision, but of him literally grasping, physically grasping on to Samuel, and metaphysically or metaphorically grasping onto the crown, unable to let it go. Saul was fired, but he's still wearing the crown, and he's not going to let it go without a fight. And that's a tough one for Samuel. Because he's been tasked with anointing the new king. And so he's kind of hesitant to get on with it. And so at the beginning of our passage, the Lord comes to him and he gives him a little pep talk. The time for grief is over. It's time to get up. I've given you a task to do. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have seen a king for myself among his sons. In our English translations, it says provided because it's trying to, to uh, make it sound a little better. But in the Hebrew, it's I've seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. It's teaching us to see what God sees. Here, Samuel is told really two things about the king God sees. First is that the king is from Bethlehem, and that itself is unusual. When we think Bethlehem, we think that place is famous. I think about Christmas, and I think about kings, and that is not what they thought about. Bethlehem was a small, backwater, relatively insignificant part of Israel, not a place that most people would go looking for a king. And secondly, it says that the king is going to be from the the, uh, son of Jesse. And Samuel may not have known much about Jesse's family, but we know about Jesse's family because we're Bible nerds and we've read the book of Ruth. We've read the story about Ruth the Moabitess and the covenant fidelity and love that she shared with Boaz, that beautiful relationship. And we know that they had sons, and that Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And so the person that Samuel is looking for is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. But Ruth was a Moabitess, 
and having a Moabitess, a non-Israelite, in the genealogy of a king of Israel would have been unimaginable. It would have certainly made that individual suspect. Do you have eyes to see? The Lord himself looking for a king in a very unlikely place from a very unlikely family. So he goes to Samuel and says, get up, take your horn and oil and go get him, tiger. Verse 2 and 4. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me uh, he whom I will declare to you. So Samuel is still kind of freaking out. He And rightly so. It should be noted that Bethlehem passes like five miles by Gibeah, which is where Saul hangs out. And so he can't go there without raising eyebrows from Saul. And he knows that Saul is out to actively oppose Samuel. Samuel is God's kingmaker. And so uh, Saul is increasingly unhinged and even capable of murder. Samuel is scared. And it's encouraging to me to know that even the great Samuel gets scared. It also encourages me that God doesn't get scared. That God's purposes and will and heart aren't shaken for a moment by the presence and the machinations of this tyrant king. His will isn't going to be thwarted. And so God provides for Samuel in his fear. He provides a plan. Samuel, he says, I want you to go undercover. Grab a heifer and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Go, don't lead with the horn and the oil. Go with this, like you're going to have a sacrificial feast. And invite Jesse to the feast and use the sacrifice as your cover to find the king. It's a little tricksy, a little sneaky, not necessarily a lie, but not the whole truth. But God isn't afraid to use a little obfuscation, a little misdirection when necessary. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves and all that. So he gives him some cover. It's not much. If I was Samuel, I would have said, a heifer? How about an army? Holy cow! How about just wiping him out? But to Samuel's credit, he obeys. Verse 4 simply says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded him and came to Bethlehem. The simple obedience of Samuel in the midst of his fear. No small thing. Saul was still out there. And the only thing between him and Saul was a heifer and a prayer. But in the midst of all of that uncertainty, he obeys. In the midst of fear and danger, he obeys. And here's what I want you to take away. Think of what Samuel's obedience accomplished. From this act in that unlikely place and to that overlooked family, this would trigger a series of events that would eventually lead to the birth of David's greater son in Bethlehem a thousand years later. 
Samuel could have never understood the extent to which his simple obedience was vital in the ongoing story of God. Most of us will never understand what our obedience will mean, our sheer commitment. When we just simply obey what the Lord is saying, we may never know what our obedience actually will mean in the providence of God. He couldn't see it, but we have eyes to see. Samuel didn't know that yet. He just obeys. Verse 3. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him who I will declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peacefully, uh, peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he goes to Bethlehem, and we learn that he was not the only one that was afraid. The elders in Bethlehem were trembling, and we don't know why they were trembling. Maybe just because Samuel was a pretty tough dude. Uh, but my guess is that word had gotten out about Saul's rejection, and they were scared to receive Samuel because of what that might mean for their city. And so they asked, is your coming going to bring peace? Or war? Why are you coming? And he said, I've come to bring peace, which he has. Which he has. And they, he says, I've come to bring a sacrifice. He goes and gets Jesse's family. And here they are at the sacrificial feast. And before we go on, um, let me just summarize. There's a tyrant king on the loose. And everybody's frightened. Samuel is frightened. All of Bethlehem is frightened. The nation is frightened. On the surface, it looks like the kingdom is coming undone. But God is at work, albeit in hidden ways, through an undercover prophet in an unlikely city to an unlikely family. And even Samuel is in the dark at this point about who from this family will be the one. And he's certainly unaware of what all this will mean for human history. And that Samuel is in the dark and doesn't get it is clear from what happens next. Verses 6 and 7. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel's job is to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And the first one that he sees is Eliab. And we know from later on in the text that Eliab is Jesse's eldest son. He would have been the most natural choice to be king, given that culture. And then there's just how he looked. He looked good. Perhaps he would have been the star receiver at Bethlehem High School or, you know, made the all-Judean all-star team or something. We don't know exactly what he looked like, but he said he had great stature. He was tall, very impressive to Samuel, to the Lord, not so much. The Lord stops Samuel in his tracks and immediately instructs Samuel not to look on what he can see. Man sees with their eyes. 
He wants them to see as the Lord sees and the Lord looks at the heart. On the one hand, it's easy to judge Samuel. I mean, come on, bro. Have you forgotten Saul? You were there. Saul looked the part. Saul was tall, a man of great stature. Everyone fawned over him. And Saul picked your pockets. He pulled the wool over your eyes. Because underneath that exterior was no substance. He had, this had all the makings of Saul part two. And we all know that sequels tend to be worse than the originals. <laughs> and so on the one hand, it's easy to judge Samuel, but on the other hand, we just understand because we make the same mistake every day, all the time. How often have we been duped? How often have we had our pockets picked by the impressive politician who portrays strength but doesn't have the character to wield it? Or the, the physically impressive partner who on the outside looks pretty good, but they don't really know how to love, not in a way that lasts. Or we look at a pastor who has great gifts. Man, they can preach. Man, they can lead. Man, they can gather people, but they don't have fruit, the fruit of the Spirit and character, and there's a moral failure And it just blows everybody's faith to smithereens. How many times have we had the wool pulled over our eyes? And how much damage has it caused? Samuel didn't wait for God's voice. He presumed on his own worldly wisdom and sight. Even God's prophet struggled with discernment in this area. And so there is a warning here. It's beware of the impressiveness of external appearances because you can have some ugly righteous people and there can be some fine wicked people. You can be tall, dark, and evil and you better believe that there can be some diamonds in the rough. And if there is any question about that, the story keeps going. Verses 8 and 9. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any one of these. And so this is a great parade. I imagine this happening on a fairground. And they're being brought out like... Prized, I don't know, whatever you look at, and they're in order, in height, of height and beauty. These, and we only get two of their names, but I've named all of them. I've named one Oli, and one named Chugger, and one, uh, who knows? They're, they're seven people. He's like, no, not that one, no, not that one, no, not that one. It's this, you're getting shorter as you go along, and it never comes, which leads Samuel to believe that not all of Jesse's sons are present. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, 
he is keeping the sheep. Now this is cool. This is like a Bible nerd point. There is a parallel here to Saul's public anointing scene. You remember that. They were going to anoint a king and they gathered all Israel and they kind of whittled it down to one guy, but they couldn't find him. Where's he at? And where was he? Hiding in the luggage. Hiding in the luggage. But now you have another scene and the whole family is gathered and they whittle it down to one person and he's not there. But where is he? Not, not hiding because of his insecurities. He was out in the field because he was such an unlikely choice. No one invited him to the party. Like a modern day Cinderella, Anastasia, and Drizella were there. But he was out doing the domestic chores. And to say that he was overlooked is not an overstatement. Jesse had eight sons. And Samuel said, bring all your sons. And Jesse brought seven. And we get a hint of why in verse 11. His father calls him the youngest, but that's not what it means. And you'll have a note in most of your Bibles that that says it actually means the smallest, but that's not even what it means. It's not a pejorative term, but it's close. The closest thing we got have is runt. He's the runt. The runt of the litter isn't here. He's out with the sheep. David's true potential was invisible to his earthly father, but not to his heavenly father. His earthly father didn't even take the time to retrieve him from the fields where he was watching the sheep. But here's the thing. Samuel doesn't need to see David Because he's been told there's a king among Jesse's sons. And this is the only son that's left. So this must be the king. And Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down until he gets here. So Samuel does that. He's never seen David. David could be tall. David could be short. David could be beautiful. David could be hideous. It didn't matter. One son remains, this is it, and so we're going to stand. Why stand? It wasn't punishment. It was a posture of honor. You don't want to be sitting when the king walks into the room. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is, man, this is where you got to put your imagination goggles on. You got to feel this from David's perspective. Imagine what it would have been like overlooked. The youngest of eight, regulated to the fields to be a shepherd. What would 
it have been like to come into a room and everyone is standing. And the prophet of God is there and it feels sacred. And the prophet of God anoints you and says, you're going to be king. I'm moving you from the pasture to the palace. You are royalty. You are God's chosen one. And it says he's beautiful, which tells us that God isn't opposed to good looks. (laughs) It's just that they don't matter much. And what it adds to the scene is that there was a lot of beauty in David that folks didn't see until later. And notice that it's all happening in the midst of his brothers. The text makes it clear. He's anointed and elevated in the midst of those who didn't think he was going to be anybody. Who didn't, of people who didn't see his beauty. Later on, David will say, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Maybe they weren't his enemies, but they were folks who had overlooked him. And he is elevated in their midst. The last verse is so powerful and the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. That's how it ends, which is interesting to me. It doesn't end with the awesomeness of David, but with the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. And that does seem interesting to me. For all the talk about what's on the inside of a person, we get very little direction here about what it was inside David. That the Lord saw. What did the Lord see? Because we know from the rest of the story that there were beautiful things in David's heart, but there were also some really dark and twisted things in his heart. David, we know, is as capable of as much or more destruction and rebellion as Saul. He too is capable of selfishness and abuse, he will prove as much. And so what was it about his heart? And what I would like to offer as an answer to that question is that it was his response to this moment. It was his acceptance of the wonder of it all. That the runt of the litter was chosen. That the shepherd was elevated amongst his brothers. That he would be king God's instrument that the Spirit of the Lord would choose to work through him, it's the thing that Israel never got. That they were elevated among all the other nations and given the Spirit of God, but they just, they just didn't get it. It's what Saul never got. He was sovereignly chosen by the grace of God, not because he was tall but he didn't get it and he didn't accept it but David got the hilarity of it all it's what fueled his best moments and it's what he used to build his life back up when he blew his life and the lives of people around him to smithereens it's not so much that was In him, it was his responsiveness to what God had done for him. In the end, it's not the awesomeness of David, but it's God's spirit permanently active in David's life. And so in the end, it's not a David story. It's a God story. We're not left pondering David's heart, but God's heart for David. 
And if there's anything to be said to David's credit, it's simply that he got it. The wonder of amazing grace. God had plucked him from the pasture and brought him to the palace. The wonder of a God who uses weak things in the world to shame the wise. It's an amazing story. And of course, it's not just David's story. It's our story. God choosing you. Plucking you from the pasture. Bringing you to the palace. Placing a unique love upon you. Elevating you in the midst of your enemies. Actually, David's story is a pale portrait of what's true of all of us in the gospel because of David's greater son. And think about his story and how it all panned out a thousand years later. There's a tyrant king on the throne, Herod. And everybody's scared and trembling because he's been told that there's a new king and he doesn't want to give up the throne. But there's some wise men who are undercover, who kind of misdirect the king so that the true king could be born in Bethlehem in the city of David glad tidings of great joy for all people and he came into the world God this king came into the world and he had a beautiful heart he wasn't much to look at on the outside But on the inside, he was God in the flesh. And no one recognized it. No one saw it. But was God come to us to give us something that we could never lose? Beauty in God's eyes. The ability to see ourselves and our story from God's perspective. And he did that by being a substitute And the sacrifice, a person beyond beauty, giving up all of his beauty so that we could have a beauty we could never lose. Beauty in God's eyes. You are beautiful to God. David's story is our story. And we've been united to the greater David. Isn't that amazing? Three takeaways. You ready for them? Gosh, that text is awesome. Your homework is just to go think about it for a long time. Eyes to see. Do you have eyes? Let's see. Let's see who we are. We're to see ourselves from God's perspective. And you know what you are? You're chosen. You know what you are? You're loved. What this text tells us is you don't have to come from perfect conditions or perfect situations. You don't have to get straight A's on a report card. You don't have to be physically attractive. You don't have to come from a family that's loving or that believes in you. You don't have to have the people around you believe in you to have God believe in you. The people that God calls often don't come from perfect and pristine places. God finds them in the pasture. And so maybe you don't come from a perfect upbringing. Maybe you've made your fair share of mistakes. Maybe you feel like, man, I smell like sheep manure. Nobody is going to love me. He plucks you up, man. He loves you. He cares about you. See yourself from his eyes. Who cares what other people think if God looks at you in this way? You don't need their validation, man. God loves you. And then to see the heart of that part's awesome. The second application is more difficult. To see other people 
through God's eyes. To not be duped by appearances. To not have our pockets picked by the tyrant kings and fast-talking politicians and celebrity pastors. We can begin to have eyes to see folks who are there to dupe us. And we also can have eyes to see those who are overlooked and forgotten. I thought about James's exhortation to the church not to show partiality. Not to the rich, not to the connected, not to the networked. But to look for those who don't look like they have much to give. Because who knows, they could be the next, they could be the king. They could be a princess. It's like the widow in her might. You know, do you remember that scene? And, and Jesus points to this elderly woman that no one sees. And she's given all that she, it's a little bit, but it's all that she has to the Lord. And there's all these religious nincompoops who, are, who give more than her, but it's not sacrificial at all. And the Lord takes his disciples and says, see her, look at her. That is the kingdom of God. Will we have the eyes to see? Many people have had their faith blow up. And so much of it has been because we focused our attention on the wrong people, methinks. I've said throughout this series because I think it's what God's doing in 1 Samuel is that for every megalomaniac pastor out there who's selfish and can't handle the position, there's a thousand grandmas who are, thou- who are praying and faithful and they make the world go round. What if we focused on them for a while? That's what God wants us to see. I want to close with this story. In C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, divorce, there's a place where there's a, it's a story about a bunch of people from hell who go to the outskirts of heaven to see what they can see there. And there's a man with his angelic guide and the guide's showing him all of these different people. And this is what it says. He meets a woman. He says, I can only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is this, is this, I asked? Oh no, said my God, or my guide. It's no one you have ever heard of. On earth, her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. But she seems to be a person of enormous importance, I said. I, she was one of the great ones that ever lived on earth, my guide said but you would have never heard of her. Don't you know that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two completely different things? Well, she must have had this huge family. Look at all these young men and women around her. No, she had none. She never married. Well, then who are all these men and women by her side? Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was the only if even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door and every girl that met her was her daughter everyone that came near her had its place in her love in her they became themselves and now the abundant life she has in Jesus Christ from her father flows out of her and into them it ends by saying this there's enough joy in the little finger of a saint like her to awaken all the dead things in the universe to life. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see? Let me pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for 1 Samuel and how it gives us eyes to see. Give us the eyes of faith so that we can see the kingdom of God. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.